uh, you get out of that habit and it's sort of hard to get back into that groove and rolling again. And I noticed that getting back into things the last couple of days and studying and sort of like, where was I? Seems like so much has happened and I know if I can't remember where we were three weeks ago or two weeks, yeah, was it three weeks ago? Yes, three weeks ago. Then I'm sure that you can't. What do what? Last year. <laughs> Last year, sometime that you can't remember. So we'll have to do some review and recapitulation and find out where we are to get back up to speed. In James, I'm keep looking for a pen here, and I notice I have a new overhead projector. It has a nice bright light. <laughs> That'll wake everybody up. It's nice how it sort of fits in the little alcove there. Almost uh, might want to figure out some way to cut those corners, cut a little cardboard to put there, just so. It... Yeah. <laughs> so that looks great, doesn't it? And it's smooth, and we're not we're not going to have the uh, the overhead the the uh, film. Well, that's a different kind of film, isn't it? It doesn't get. Uh, it doesn't get creases in it and start tearing like the other one. Do what? Center it? It is centered. You have to tilt your head to get to the right a little bit, and that'll, then it'll look centered. Cross your eyes just a little bit. It's all how you hold your tongue. Okay, well, we need to get into the study of God's Word because it's been some time, and you should be spiritually hungry by now since you haven't eaten in a while. So let's get into our study of the Word. Before we get started, we need to make sure we are prepared for study of God's Word through the use of 1 John 1.9. We confess our sins. God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I am continually amazed and having gone down to Houston over the last uh, two or three weeks, two weeks when we were down there at Christmas, how uh, people today just get, have gotten so confused over the whole issue of forgiveness. Uh, we're isolated up here in New England, thank heavens, and we're not being influenced by some of these uh, crazy things that are going on today. But even within doctrinal churches and men who ought to know better and men who have taught for years the correct principles of confession and restoration of the filling of the Holy Spirit and fellowship to God, getting terribly confused and throwing it out. You don't need to confess your sins. It's somehow you're just uh, automatically cleansed by the Holy Spirit. And a lot of confusing things are going on. So we need to make sure we keep these things clear. Scriptures make it clear that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So there's some, something must take place in the believer's life at salvation. Well, we got a great new overhead. And the pins don't work. Here's the cross. At the cross, all of our, our pre-salvation sins are taken care of. But what happens in the Christian life? Well, we have to watch this new, um, new film. You put your hand down on it and it starts moving all over the place. Pre-salvation sins, all taken care of at the cross. Wiped clean. But as soon as we sin after salvation, we are out of fellowship. Out of fellowship, we are under the control of the sin nature. When we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So something has to deal, something has to resolve the problem of post-salvation sins. And that's the role of 1 John 1.9. The basis is clear in 1 John 1.7 that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses. See, the word there is katharizo for purification, cleansing. It's a present active indicative. And what is happening is people are taking 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Christ continually cleanses as the, the reality that no matter what happens, the blood of Christ will always cleanse you. So whether or not you confess your sins is really not the issue. Because the blood of Christ will always cleanse you and always deal with those post-salvation sins. But what we have to understand in Scripture is a basic rule of interpretation. 
that the general, which is 1 John 1, 9, is always clarified by the specific. The basis for all cleansing is the death of Christ, the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. That's what blood of Christ refers to. That is applied through 1 John 1, 9 when we admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And instantly... We are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our Christian life. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the issue of individual education, IQ, individual intellectual abilities is is, uh, uh, equalized because we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has equal opportunity to learn, understand, and assimilate the Word of God into their soul. So let's begin with... Uh, confession, 1 John 1, 9, and then we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your perfect word tonight. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, that it illuminates every decision, every issue, every problem, every adversity that we face in life and gives us direct and clear guidance. So now as we study your word, we pray that we would be receptive to it and responsive, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, these things will be made clear to our soul, that as we believe them, they will be metabolized and assimilated into our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying James, in case you have forgotten over the last three weeks where we are. And we find ourselves down in verse 19. But before we get into verse 19, we need to remind ourselves what has been taking place in this epistle. James is written to teach us how to handle trials and tests in life. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. And we have seen that adversity is the outside pressure of circumstances. Adversity. The outside pressure on our souls of all kinds of adversity. It can be through adversity or it can be prosperity testing. But as these tests attack us, we can build a fortress around our soul through the use of the ten stress busters. These begin with, number one, Confession, 1 John 1, 9. Two, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Three, the faith rest drill, which is, begins with mixing the promises of God with faith. And that assumes that you know some of the promises of God. I'm amazed today how many believers do not take the time to memorize Scripture, to go through Scripture and to learn it and internalize it. If you don't know the promises of God, then you, cannot, you don't have anything to mix with faith. So it's very important to be in, have some kind of program where you are learning scriptures so that you can apply these scriptures and call upon them in the beginning stages of the faith rest drill. Stress, number, stress buster number four is grace orientation. Five is doctrinal orientation. And this will be the subject of our study for the next several weeks, beginning with James 1, uh, 22. We'll focus on this problem-solving device of doctrinal orientation. Six is a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Then we get into seven, eight, and nine, which is the love triplex. It begins with impersonal love for all mankind, then personal love for God the Father, and culminates in occupation with Christ, where Christ is the focus of our thinking. And the result of this is ten, Sharing the inner happiness of God or sharing the happiness of God or inner happiness. This is the result of the love triplex and is the ultimate theme of the epistle of James. James begins in 1 2 saying, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We have seen that in the beginning of James, I keep wanting to go the wrong way with this new scroll. Beginning of James, we have a prologue. The Bible is composed of many different kinds of literature. You have poetry, you have historical literature, you have legal literature, 
and you have epistolary literature, letters. That's what comprises most of the New Testament. Just as with any good piece of writing, the New Testament follows the criterion of good literature. It begins with a prologue, as we will see. It will end with a conclusion or an epilogue in the last of chapter 5 when we eventually get there. In between, there is the main body of this epistle. The prologue, the purpose of the prologue is to introduce the major theme or themes of a piece of literature. What we see with James is that the theme is how to handle trials, how to handle adversity so that you do not convert it into stress in the soul and thus produce soul fragmentation and end up on a course of spiritual self-destruction because you're trying to handle life's problems in the energy of the flesh under the sin nature rather than through the stress busters. So James is urging believers in this prologue to respond to trials through the application of doctrine and not to react by blaming God. Here we learn that the purpose of testing is to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine and to grow spiritually. Because we know, verse 3, because we know that the testing of our faith, and there we saw that this is the objective sense of faith, that is what we believe, doctrine. It's a causal participle because we know something, that the testing of faith, the doctrine that's in our soul, produces endurance. So you can't get from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity without going through a variety of tests to give us the opportunity to learn and apply doctrine. That's how growth takes place. And incidentally, that's what we have to take with us when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. There's a saying that you can't take it with you. But the only thing you can take with you is whatever you have in your soul. The doctrine that you have in your soul determines the capacity that you have for eternal happiness and the capacity you have for appreciating and understanding your position in heaven once we arrive and we're face to face with the Lord. So the Lord prepares us for that because there are many things that we cannot learn apart from testing. That's the principle of verses 2 through 4. Review those. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Causal participle. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its maturing result. I want, in case this hasn't become obvious to you by now, what this is saying is that when you're regenerated, you are a spiritual infant. There is only one path to spiritual maturity, and that is through passing various tests. When you get to heaven, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, we will be minus testing. We'll be in perfect environment. There'll be no more testing, no more adversity. Therefore, if testing and adversity is that which is necessary to get us from the beginning point in the spiritual life to spiritual maturity, then there's not going to be a process in heaven. What you have now, what you develop now in this life is what you will have with you when you get to heaven. That's why it is so important to be learning doctrine today, day in and day out, to make that the highest priority in your life so that we can grow to spiritual maturity and we're prepared for our position in heaven when we're face to face with the Lord. So this is the theme that is introduced in the first uh, 18 or 19 verses of James. Now in the first 10 verses, aside from verse 1, which is the salutation, beginning from verse 2 down to verse 11, James describes the the correct response to tests of faith is to persistently apply doctrine that is stored in the soul. There he emphasizes the faith rest drill in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith without any, any, any doubting. It's through doctrinal orientation. We lack wisdom in handling trials, so we need to learn wisdom. That comes from learning Bible doctrine and letting it fortify our soul. It's relying on the faith rest drill. We also saw in verses 9, 10, and 11 an emphasis on humility, which is part of grace orientation as well as personal sense 
of eternal destiny. All of that was covered from verses 2 down through verse 11. Then in verse 12, there's a shift. Verse 2 through 11 talked about the correct response to tests. Then beginning in verse 12, it talks about the incorrect response. Believers must recognize that they are not to give in to self-absorption, self-pity, and begin to blame God when they come under tests. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's the incorrect response to tests. And there we saw the dynamics of uh, sin, lust, uniting with the volition gives birth to sin in verse 15, and the result of that is temporal or carnal death. We are warned in verse 16 not to be deceived, not to start blaming God because of the problems in our life. And then James reminds us of the character and the perfection of God and His perfect faithfulness in verses 17 and 18. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now that brings us up to date and sort of gets our thinking back on track as to what's going on here in James chapter 1. Then we come to verse 19. Now verses 19 through 21 comprise a paragraph. Let me read those for you. This you know, I'm reading from the New American Standard and we'll have to come back and correct the translation here in several places because there are some problems. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, it may not appear to you at first glance, but this is one of the most important and significant passages in this whole epistle. And that is because how you interpret this determines how you will interpret the rest of this epistle. And so it's very important for us to slow down a little bit and begin to take uh, a detailed analysis of these, these verses. To some of you, oh, we need to ask the question, what is the connection of verses 19 through 21 to the previous 18 verses? How does that connect to what James has already been saying? And furthermore, how is this going to relate to the rest of this epistle? Now, some of you will think that this seems like a rather odd question, and you won't see its relevance right off the bat. But in the process of interpreting Scripture, it's critical that we analyze all of the data. And sometimes this means that we have to get into some pretty minute analysis Look at the minutiae of the passage. Remember, before we can make any application, any application of doctrine always is built on a correct interpretation. There is only one interpretation of every passage of Scripture. But there are many different applications. But applications, in other words, what you do with it, is determined by what the passage means. Now, interpretation involves two things. Interpretation involves determining the meaning of the author. There are two authors in Scripture, though. There is the human author, and there is the divine author. So we have to determine the purpose of the, or the, the purpose of exegeting a passage is to determine the meaning of the human and the divine author when this was written. What did James mean and what was God the Holy Spirit communicating to us through, the, through James? Now that is derived at through, through a combination of, of various different exercises. It begins with exegesis. Exegesis looks at the, first of all, at the grammar of a passage. This is where you look at nouns and you determine what case the noun is in, whether it's a nominative, genitive, dative, or accusative. Then you have to look at whether it's a singular or plural, and you have to determine what what significance each of those factors uh, might have. You look at the verbs. You parse the verbs. 
you determine what the tense is. You determine what the person is, whether it's uh, first person, second person, third person. You determine whether it's plural or singular. Uh, you determine what the uh, tense is, present tense, aorist tense, imperfect, future, whatever it may be. Each of these things has significance for meaning. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, that tells you, in conjunction with other passages, such as when Jesus says in Matthew Matthew 5, that no jot or tittle will pass away until all has come to pass, is that every word, not only in terms of the word itself, but its form, is significant, whether it's a plural, whether it's a singular, whether it's present tense, whether it's aorist tense, whatever. We have to look at the form. We have to look then at word meaning. Or we skipped a step here. Exegesis involves grammar. Secondly, it involves syntax. That's how the words relate to one another in the passage. Then you have to do lexical studies. You have to determine the meaning of these words. Then we have to do textual studies at times, and that is investigating what was written in the original manuscript. Remember, when we define the inerrancy of Scripture, it is the original writings, what what theologians call the original autographs. It is the original writings that were inerrant and infallible. It is not the translations. It's not the King James Version. You'll still hear some fighting fundies say that if the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, then it's good enough for me. Only problem is the Apostle Paul didn't know English. So you have to go through this process. In interpretation, you have to look at the grammar. You have to look at the syntax. You have to do lexical studies of the words, and you have to do textual studies, especially if there is a problem. And we're going to run into that right off the bat in verse 19. Textual problem means that some manuscripts have, have one word, other manuscripts may have another word, and you have to compare manuscripts and a number of other factors and determine what the original reading of the passage is. This is called the science of textual criticism, and we're going to see a little bit of that uh, this, this evening. Now, once you go through all of this, then you have to begin to relate the word, the, the verse, to its overall context. Sometimes you have to relate it to the sentence. If you look at this verse, you see that verse 19 is part of a sentence that includes verse 20. So you have to relate the context of verse 19 to verse 20 and then to the overall paragraph. Then you begin to relate that to the subsection and then to the major division within the epistle and then the message of the epistle itself. So you constantly expand that spiral. Now the reason I'm going through all of this is I want you to understand that when you come to the, go through the process of determining what Scripture says, sometimes you spend a lot of time focusing on some pretty minute information. And this is always critical. I've been reminded recently of, of a great analogy of what I think pastors go through. And this is the role of the pastor. And this is a problem we face today is that many pastors, most pastors, don't take the time to do this. In fact... Sad to say, most pastors don't even have the skills to do this anymore. And yet, this is something that you have to do if you're going to feed the sheep. Remember, Jesus told Peter that he was to feed the sheep. 1 Peter 2.2, Peter remembered this. And Peter told his readers that they, and commanded them that they were to desire the sincere milk of the Word that they could grow thereby. We grow spiritually, not just because we come to church, not because we do things. You never grow because you pray. You never grow because you are engaged in certain spiritual um, activities, so-called. Too often that's what's taught in most churches, that if you get out and you witness, you give, you pray, you get involved in discipleship groups, all of these things, that that causes spiritual growth. That's completely contrary to the Word of God. The Scripture says that it is the Word of God that is the change agent in our lives. Nothing else. We learn the Word of God and then we apply the Word of God. And one of the ways in which we apply it is in the realm of prayer, giving, service, whatever it may be, service through our spiritual gifts, whatever it may be. Now, the role of the pastor is to get into the Word of God and study it 
and teach it. Too often, because of a lot of cultural factors and historical factors, we've lost that in the pastorate. What happens is the pastors spend all their time going out and visiting, doing hospital visitation and uh, going to retirement homes and uh, working through all kinds of different activities and trying to figure out what program to run in the church and working with the choir, whatever it may be, rather than spending their time doing what the Lord said we're to do, and that is to equip the saints through the teaching of God's Word. So I'm going to give you a little clue as to what pastors have to go through sometimes, and it focuses on minutia. Now, I thought of this analogy this afternoon. I'm a great fan of murder mysteries, and I don't read them all the time, but over the years, I'll, for a while, I'll get on a kick, and I'll read Agatha Christie, and then I'll read Sherlock Holmes. I remember reading, cutting my eye teeth on Sherlock Holmes back when I was in junior high, and uh, oh, you have other, other uh, great uh, uh, mystery detectives like Lord Peter Whimsey and Cadfile and many others. Right now I'm on, on a Perry Mason kit. When I was in Houston, I went to a used bookstore and found 12 old Perry Mason novels and bought them for $4.50 for the whole, whole batch. And now what you have in any good mystery novel, you have, a, you have your hero, your protagonist. He's here. Over here you have your antagonist, and in the case of Perry Mason novels, you have Perry Mason over here, and he always uh, takes on the person who appears to be most guilty. And over here you have the uh, antagonist, which is uh, Hamilton Berger, and uh, Lieutenant Tragg, you all remember that from the old TV show. Well, what happens in the process of a murder mystery is the hero is the either the adept detective or lawyer who through the use of his own powers of observation and his use, rigorous use of logic, uh, manages to solve some of the most difficult conundrums of crime and always frees the innocent victim from a lifetime of incarceration or worse by the end of the novel. On the other hand, there's the uh, antagonist, which is usually a... Uh, uh, in this case, it's the district attorney, but sometimes it's a, it's a police detective or someone who looks at the same data. They're both looking at the same facts. The hero arrives at one interpretation, and the antagonist arrives at a different interpretation. The antagonist is usually looking at all the data somewhat superficially. The protagonist, the hero, the detective, Sherlock Holmes, Perry Mason, Cadfile, whomever, looks at the same data and he thinks outside the box. He thinks creatively. He has a certain amount of objectivity. Usually he's not, doesn't have his own agenda of getting his man or something like that, which the, uh, the detective has. And so he, they come up with different solutions. Now this is very important because this is analogous to what the pastor does. The pastor has a certain amount of data, clues, as to the meaning of a passage. And what he has to do is investigate the grammar, the syntax, the word studies. He has a mystery. What does this passage mean? What does God the Holy Spirit want to communicate to me? What does this mean? And so often what happens is, just like in a good mystery novel, what happens is there, there's one or two facts that are a little hard to uncover. And it takes a lot of time and a lot, it takes a lot of investigation. It takes a certain amount of objectivity. But you have to continue to persevere and dig and dig and dig until you find one or two of these facts which become the interpretive key to the passage. Just as in a good murder mystery, sooner or later the hero is going to uncover that one fact. It may not seem very significant at the time, and if, you, if it's a good novel, then you're going to miss it completely when you're reading through it. You don't even see it until at the end, and then all of a sudden you discover its significance. But it's this interpretive key, this one small fact, that all of a sudden breaks everything open so that you can then arrange all of the other facts and come up with the truth. If you don't uncover those facts, then no matter what you do, because you're operating on a false interpretive grid, 
you are going to come up with a false solution. And this happens time and time again in biblical studies because people don't do their homework and they're operating either on a superficial concept of the spiritual life or they're missing one or two facts. Now, how does all of this relate to James? Well, it relates to James because we are getting ready to study one of the most disputed passages in all of the Bible, one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible, and it comes up at the end of chapter 2. But it's part of a section in James, and that section begins in verse 22. So we have to, as we approach verse 19, which sets everything up, we have to make sure that we pay attention to the minutiae, because it's the minutiae that is overlooked by almost every commentary and most theologians, and which cause a completely uh, false interpretation of James. Now, what am I talking about? I discovered this about 20 years ago when I first started studying James seriously. About that time, I was still in seminary. I started picking up a few commentaries here and there on James. And as I read these commentaries, one thing that impressed me that they all had in common, they treated the epistle of James as if it were the New Testament Proverbs. That means that it's just a series of collected wisdom sayings or collected applications, but there's no inherent unity to James. So, no unity. Now, if you start off with with that as your assumption about this epistle, that there's no inherent unity, it's just a series or a collection of, of, uh, of wise sayings or admonitions to believers and unbelievers, then when you come to some of these difficult passages, you're going to completely misunderstand them. And you have to pay attention to some, you have to do some, some precise homework here, and you have to look at what is really being said. You have to sort of uh, pay attention to these details and then relate them to the whole. And very few interpreters, I only know of one published commentary, only one published commentary that, maybe two, no, that's not a commentary, one theology that even comes close to understanding James. And what I have said so far is that James has an inherent unity. It's a very tight unity. It's very well organized. And if you approach James as as a unity, that it's written to believers, then you're going to avoid a lot of these traps. So we have to pay attention to these details. And I say all of that because I spent most of the day just studying the first word in James 1.19 because as we get there, it just brings us to a whole boatload of problems. Now, if we read that in the New American Standard, it starts off, this you know, my beloved brethren. And that translates a word in the, in the Greek New Testament Ista, I-S-T-E. Now, I want to ask a question here, and you can just show your hands. How many, how many of you have a reading in your Bible that says, this you know? That's a declarative sentence. Stick your hands up high so that I can see that. Okay, that's almost everybody. How much, how many say, start off, therefore, my beloved brethren? Anybody have that? Well, none of you are using the King James Version. That's obvious. King James Version starts off quite differently. Instead of this, you know. Oh, we have one. We have one. Yeah, wherefore. Wherefore. Or therefore. That's how the King James begins. Now, the difference is important. King James, the the Greek manuscripts that the King James translation is based on is called the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. That was the collection of Greek manuscripts available in the uh, 17th century when they translated the King James Version. And the reading in the King James is this word in the Greek, hosta. Now, this little apostrophe-looking thing up here in Greek is a rough breathing mark. It's not really a letter, but we always translate it with an H followed by O-S-T-E. Now, immediately you will see a similarity between ista and hosta, that the only difference between the, this Greek word ista 
And this Greek word hosta is that the first word begins with an iota and the second word begins with an omega. But they're two completely different words. Now then the issue is which is in the original. So that's what's called a textual problem. But not only do we have a textual problem here, but we have a morphological problem. Now there's a good 25 cent word for you. Morphological refers to the study of the structure and the form of words in a language, including inflection, derivation, and the formation of compounds. So we have a form of a word here, hista. We have, this is a verb, and we have to determine what, part of, what, what the parsing is of that verb. And in this case, the same form is used for both the present, active, indicative, which is a declarative statement of fact, which is how the New American Standard has interpreted this. Notice, I want you to pay attention to this. I'm going through a lot of detail here to teach you a few interesting facts. That translations are based on interpretations of the translator. So when you look at this, and it starts off this, you know, he, that translator looked at this form and said it's a present active indicative and so it should be translated as a declarative statement that you know something. This you know. But this same form is also the perfect active imperative of the main verb or the verb oida, O-I-D-A, which means to know. To know, to come to know, to learn something, to make it, uh, to, to have knowledge of something. So is this a, a, a present active indicative, a declarative st statement, or is it a mandate? We have to answer that. But first we have to determine which word it is, whether it's a ista based on oida or whether it is the particle hosta, which is a word of conclusion, drawing a conclusion or inference, an inferential particle meaning therefore or wherefore. Now, as you can see, this makes these are different words, and you may not see the significance, but it's these little details, these little details that ultimately affect the overall interpretation of a passage. So we have to solve this problem. Well, the evidence in the text for Hista comes to a group of ancient manuscripts called Codex Sinaiticus, which is found in... Uh, St. Catherine's Monastery down on Mount Sinai in the middle of the 19th century, Codex Vaticanus, which was discovered hidden away in the Vatican about the same time, and Codex Alexandrinus. Now, these three manuscripts, they're symbolized by Aleph, A, and B. When these three manuscripts are in agreement, many scholars say that is the original reading of Scripture. The problem is that these three manuscripts all derive from the same geographical area, northern Egypt. They all date back to the late 2nd to mid-3rd century, so they're very ancient manuscripts. And the assumption is that older is better. But northern Egypt was also the seedbed of many heresies. So you have a lot of other factors that come in. Also, a manuscript that is written in the 9th century can be a very accurate reflection of its predecessor, which is written at the very beginning of the second century that would be older than one of these. So while older is better sounds good, once it, you begin to take it apart, it's not always so good. The other theory in textual criticism, and I'm really simplifying this for all of you, is what's called the majority text. And to simplify this, the, the reading that's found in the majority of ancient documents is the original reading. And the majority text has this view. But the textual evidence is not always that clear. So you have to look at the internal evidence. And by internal evidence, I mean the style of the writer. And you have to do a lot of internal analysis as to James' literary style. Now, this is where I've started seeing some interesting things this afternoon. 
James, we're going to look first of all at James' use of imperatives in the introduction. As many times as I've gone through this epistle, and I've studied it and taught it about 10 or 12 times now, I'm seeing things now that I've never, ever seen before. And that's what happens. The more you get into God's Word, it's sort of like a gold mine. The deeper and deeper you go, the more you discover. James uses 11 different commands in these first 21 verses. 11 different commands. Now, the way he uses these commands is very interesting. He starts off in verse 2 with a second person plural command. Count it all joy. We were to translate that. We would translate it, you all count it joy. Good southern Greek translation. You all count it joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, and notice the style, style there. He begins with an imperative followed by my brethren. Then what do we have? In verse 4, he says, And let endurance have its perfect result. Now, this is an imperative, but it's a third person singular. So he says, Let it have its perfect result. Then in verse 5, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So there we have another third person singular imperative. Then in verse 6, we have, but let him ask in faith. So we have the same phrase again in verse 6, and that's a third person singular. And then in verse 7, a negative command, for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And... That is also a third person singular. And then in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, and that's a third person singular. So that's going to bring us down to verse 13, let no one say. Now what what do we see here? This is a second person plural, and then we're going to return to another second person plural in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Notice you have a second person plural plus the phrase, my beloved brethren. Second person plural imperative. This is a negative, a warning. Do not be deceived. Then in verse 20, we're going to take this. If it is the imperative form, then it is a second person plural, perfect active imperative. Know this, my beloved brethren. Every time he mentions my brethren or my beloved brethren, notice his style. It's preceded by a command. That goes all the way through this particular epistle. Know this, that's a second person plural. And then it's followed by what? It's followed by three commands, but let everyone be. Let be is a third person singular imperative. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So now you have these three mandates and they are expressed by a third person singular imperative. Now what does all of this mean? Well, then you sit back at your desk and you scratch your head and you pray a little bit and ask the Holy Spirit for a little guidance. And you look at this and you realize there's a very interesting stylistic pattern here. James wants us to learn something. These second person plurals are addressed as a whole. These are your general principles related to the spiritual life. We're to count it all joy. Well, how do you do that? What are the mechanics of counting it joy? These are expressed by these third person singular these are addressed to the individual in specific situations. The, the third-person singular imperative expressed the mechanics, the details of how to carry out the general mandates for the spiritual life which are expressed by these second-person plural imperatives. Now, we're going to come back and see that. That's just the kind of thing that after spending six hours studying this and you discover that, it just gets you real excited and you get the rosy glow and almost start speaking in tongues. It's really exciting when you start seeing these kinds of things in, in the Scriptures. 
I don't know whether that has anything to do with the third cup of cappuccino or not. But. Okay, so first of all, we see that James has a very distinctive use of imperatives, a very distinctive pattern throughout the prologue. That's the first point. The second point is that James uses imperatives to begin his paragraphs, and he never begins a paragraph in the entire epistle with wherefore or therefore, the Greek word hosta. He never uses it. It never appears anywhere else in the epistle. Third point of observation here is that verse 19 does not appear to be a conclusion derived from verse 18. The King James translates it, therefore, wherefore, that would be a conclusion, but it's not related that tightly to verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Therefore, doesn't fit. Verse 19 is not a conclusion from verse 18. Fourth point of observation is there seems to be a certain parallel structure between verses 16 through 18 and verses 19 through 21. It begins with the second person plural, the vocative, my beloved brethren, and then an explanation. Verse 19 begins um, with, a, with an imperative, then the vocative, my beloved brethren, and then an explanation. So there's a parallel between 16 through 18 and 19 through 21 in terms of style and structure. And finally, the vocative. By vocative, I mean the form of address, my beloved brethren. This phrase in the Greek, my beloved brethren or my brethren, is generally associated with an imperative in this epistle. Nine times, brethren, autophoi in the Greek, is fo- follows an imperative. So nine times it follows an, a command, a mandate. Twice, it precedes a mandate. One time, it introduces a imperative clause and twice it's uncertain and only once in the whole epistle does it introduce a declarative sentence. So you see now what we've done is we've looked at this word and we've analyzed the style of the writer to determine what does the original text say. Because that's important. If you if you start off with the wrong thing you're going to end up with the wrong so the first word is going to be a imperative. It's a perfect, active imperative. Now you've got another problem. It fits that it's an imperative as opposed to a declarative. So when you're looking at your New American Standard and it translates it, this you know, what, the, what they're interpreting that to mean, well, you've been taught this in the past with the result that you know it in the present. It's simply a declaration of fact. So James would be reminding them of something they already knew. But if this is a perfect active imperative, then he is commanding them to learn something. To learn a principle and to apply it to their spiritual life. This tells us, by inference, that He's relating this to the spiritual life of believers and this is sanctification doctrine and it is not salvation doctrine. And that is so important and that is further emphasized by the phrase, my beloved brethren. But the problem that you have is that a perfect imperative is extremely rare in the New Testament. So if you're solving a textual problem and the alternate reading is a perfect imperative and that's rare, then you have to scratch your head and say, why in the world would James use a perfect imperative? And the answer is simple. can't believe how long it takes to find a simple answer. James is writing to Jews, and this is simply a Hebraism. It's an idiom that is a holdover from his native Hebrew or Aramaic. It's not a normal expression in Greek. But the perfect imperative emphasizes the importance of learning this right now, of making this a, these principles a part of your life.
So in conclusion, what we see is that the proper reading of the text is the verb form oida. Know this. It's a command. Know this. You all know this. It is the mandate. And because it's the plural, because this is the second person plural following the structure of the introduction, we know that this is going to give us a basic mandate for the spiritual life, for living the spiritual life, and it will be followed by specifics related to the mechanics of the spiritual life. And that's exactly what we find. You all know this, my beloved brethren. So the emphasis here is on knowledge. Now, we live in an era when knowledge is being rejected, rational, along with the rejection of rationalism and empiricism, People are rejecting knowledge and they're emoting over everything. In fact, even secularists are beginning to observe that one of the major problems facing our whole culture is that we are emoting too much, we're too concerned about expressing our emotions, and we're not thinking, we're not exercising self-discipline or self-control, and as a result, we are fragmenting as a culture. We're going in a thousand different directions. We're imploding. And so the future decade is going to be a decade of extreme confusion. James is giving us just the opposite. He says, you need to know something. You need to go through the process of learning. Romans 12.2 emphasizes the fact that the spiritual life is a life of thought. It's not a life of emotion. It's not a life of mysticism. It's not a life of subjectivity. It's a life that is based upon learning the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, study to sh- or 1 Timothy 2 Timothy 2.12 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the word of God, the word of truth. So we have to learn it. We have to study. And the word there in the Greek is spudazo. S-P-O-U-D-A-Z-O, which has as its root meaning diligence. And when that is applied to the Word of God, it of course means to study. So the Old King James translation is really more precise than the New American Standard because it takes into account the context that we are to be involved in a detailed study of God's Word. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what James is referring. We, can only, we cannot apply what we do not know. The trouble today is that seminary students are being taught that when they go into the pulpit, they have to give people application. And the worst thing you can ever do is what I just spent the last 45 minutes doing because it's going to bore people and they won't understand it and it will be over their head. But it's dumbing down the church. It's dumbing down evangelicalism. It's dumbing down Christianity. And what it does is if you teach people application or what to do without, they, without them understanding the why and the how and the basis in theology and doctrine, then what you've done is you have reduced Christianity to nothing more than morality following certain principles and certain mandates without understanding the mechanics related to the spiritual life and the, and the power of God the Holy Spirit. Scripture says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it seems like the greatest sin today in the church is to address anything to thinking Christians. The last thing in the world we want to do is think. We just want to emote. We want to come to church and we want to say, oh, didn't it feel like we were in the presence of God this morning? I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of hearing people. uh, You watch the news and you see people interview. uh, You see a reporter interview somebody on the street. Say, well, how do you feel about the president? Well, I don't care how anybody feels about the president. I don't care how anybody feels about the situation in Washington. I want to know how they, what they think about it. I don't want to hear how they emote about it. I want to hear how they think about it. I want to hear something cognitive. I want to hear something rational. I don't want to hear a lot of emotion, but that's exactly what we hear all the time, even from members of the Senate, members of the House of Representatives. Very seldom do we hear anybody giving clear thought to any of the issues. So we're too busy emoting and not spending enough time thinking. And the Bible says that the Christian life is a life of thought. 
We're to renew our minds. We're to think these things after Christ. We're to think the thoughts of God, and we can only do that by renewing our mind. So how does that happen? It happens through what I'm developing here as a grace-learning spiral. The goal is to change the innermost thinking. I'm drawing that too small. The innermost thinking of our soul, which the Bible calls the heart. In the Greek, it's cardia. In the Hebrew, it's lave. Now, heart refers to the innermost core of something, the innermost part of your thinking. Now, the Bible uses another word, which in the Greek is nous, N-O-U-S, for mind. Now, when you begin to learn doctrine, what happens is a pastor-teacher communicates the truth of God's Word. As he teaches that, it goes in your ear. Then, God the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to you under the term, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, pneumaticos. God the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to you. He doesn't understand it for you. It's very important to understand that distinction. He merely takes that spiritual truth and gives you the ability to understand it, but you have to apply your positive volition and think about it. What the Old Testament calls meditation. You have to think about these things. That means you don't just sit here in Bible class, take notes, put them in your notebook, and think that somehow you're growing to spiritual maturity because you have a doctrinal notebook and you have volumes on your shelf of the doctrines you have been exposed to in Bible class. What matters is that you have thought about it and internalized it in part of your your soul. You understand. The reason a lot of people screw up in the Christian life, I think, and fall apart is because they've never really understood the doctrine. They can... Talk to talk, they have the vocabulary, they can regurgitate it back, but they don't really understand it. We've all met people like that, and you you listen to them and you say, have you really listened to the same thing that I've been listening to? The Holy Spirit makes it understandable, and then He transfers it into your mind, where it becomes gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which is academic knowledge. Everything in life begins with academic knowledge. The only reason you're able to balance your checkbook, and it's that time of year again to start worrying about our taxes, fill out the tax form, is because you spent a lot of time learning abstract mathematics and arithmetic in the first grade, 1 plus 1 equals 2. That was academic knowledge, and it really wasn't related to anything, but eventually it became usable knowledge. Well, in the spiritual realm, you have the same analogy. It becomes gnosis or academic knowledge. And then you have to use your volition again, whether you believe it or not. But it can't become academic knowledge unless you understand it. You can't say, Father, I believe that's true unless you understand what you're believing. That means you have to think about it. You have to engage your little gray cells and think about what I'm teaching you in Bible class. So you believe it, exercise positive volition, and it circulates through your mind and into the inner lobe of your soul, the heart, the innermost part where God the Holy Spirit circulates it. Does that make sense? That's the process of renewing the mind. That's what James is referring to here when he makes the command, know this, my beloved brethren. And then he gives the specificities. Let everyone be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is very interesting and crucial to understanding the entire epistle of James. I stated earlier that one of the problems is you look at just about any commentator who's written on James and they say James is the New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs. It's just a collection of different wise sayings and and principles for living the Christian life. They're unrelated. Some apply to believers. Some apply to unbelievers. That's why they get all confused when they come to the end of James chapter 2, the passage on faith and works. They're operating from a false concept over the overall message of the epistle. But this epistle has tremendous unity. I started off by saying we've studied the prologue. In the first, what I think, the prologue goes down to verse 21. From 1-1 down to 21, you have the prologue, and then there'll be an epilogue in chapter 5. And in between you have 
the main body of this epistle. Now, this main body is going to be divided into three sections. And they are outlined for us in verse 19. This is one of the most clear, interpretive verses that I've run across in Scripture. Remember I said, when I used the analogy with Perry Mason in the mystery novel, is the detective always stumbles on one small fact that once he sees that in its true light, it causes everything else to be, re, to be able to be correctly understood. It's that key interpretive fact. And verse 19 is the interpretive key to the entire epistle of James. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, when we get into this, we're going to see that from verse 22 of chapter 1 down through the end of chapter 2, James is going to develop the whole concept of hearing. What it means to listen to the Word of God, that it doesn't just stop with getting it into your notes, but it culminates in application and action. Hearing without application is fruitless. It's vanity. And there are going to be three divisions from verse 22 down through the end of chapter 1. And then he's going to talk about application in 2.1 down through 13. And then he will conclude in verses 14 through the end of chapter 2, 2.26, with the analogy starts off talking about hearing and doing. And this is analogous to faith and works. And both relate to believers and believers only and don't have anything to do with justification, salvation, but sanctification. Then what happens in chapter 3? Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we, shall, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. And there he starts talking about sins of the tongue and speaking. So we are to be slow to speak. And he deals with sins of the tongue here. And then slow to anger starting in chapter 4, verse 1, down through chapter 5, verse 6. The issue is mental attitude sins. Now the theme of this whole epistle is how to correctly handle adversity. We start by hearing the Word of God. You have to get the Word of God into your soul. You cannot apply what you don't know. And that's the thrust of the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. Then we have wrong responses. In adversity, we always want to talk too much. We want to talk instead of listen. Instead of taking our time listening to the Word of God, we want to get self-absorbed and tell everybody about all our problems. This is uh, often we want to get all our friends together and we want to moan and groan and complain about everything that's going on in our life. And that isn't how Job started, but that's what eventually happened. Notice that when Job first went through his testing in Job 1 and in Job 2, he said very little. And what he said was precise, correct, and to the point. It had significance. But then he began to collect his friends around, and they began to have a little conversation, and they started to discuss his problems and what God was doing in his life. And the more he talked the more he dug a hole for himself. And his final conclusion was that he talked too much. In Job 40, verse 4, he said, in his talking to God, he said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Then in Job 42, 3, he said, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. He was running off at the mouth. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So Job exhibited that problem that we all have is we talk too much. And then the other problem that we have when we encounter trials is that often we respond in anger. Anger, whenever we respond in anger, the first thing we ought to see is that we're not getting our way. Things aren't going the way we want them to go. Somebody isn't behaving the way we think they should behave. Somebody's not driving the way we think they should drive. Whatever it might be, We don't want to get too close to home here. We respond in anger because we are basically self-absorbed and operating on arrogance. 
And anger ultimately leads to bitterness and a whole array of mental attitude sins. Bitterness, jealousy, which are, which are the focus of chapter 4, uh, hostility, envy, all of these things which are destructive to the soul, and we will get into a detailed analysis of the problems of bitterness and how to avoid bitterness with impersonal love for God, uh, impersonal love for all mankind, personal love for God, and all of that when we come into chapter 4. So what we see, wrapping up our study tonight in 119 through 21, is that we are to be quick to hear, that is, our priority is to learn Bible doctrine. That's the highest priority in our lives. We organize everything around that priority. If we can't make Bible class, then we get the tapes because we constantly have to be reminded of what the Word of God says. Let everyone be quick to hear, and then it's application. Notice it always starts with learning doctrine and then application of doctrine. Application without the process of learning always ends up in superficial morality, which is nothing more than Pharisaism. You have to understand the doctrine that underlies the issues. You can't just go out and and just get involved in application without learning doctrine. That changes the whole dynamics. Let everyone be quick to hear, learn doctrine first, then apply it. Slow to speak and slow to anger. And then we'll come back and look at the rest of this paragraph next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of it, the perspicacity of it, that it reveals to us exactly what we need in our lives. Father, we thank You for the encouragement of James in helping us to understand how to deal with adversity and tests in our lives. We pray that as we continue this study that we may be challenged in terms of making Bible doctrine the highest priority in our lives, to arrange our schedules, to arrange our thinking, so that everything is subsumed under that high priority. Now, Father, as we go throughout this week, we pray that you would remind us of the things that we have learned, that we can apply them throughout the day. In Christ's name, amen.